So I think it's safe to say at just about any age in life, the idea of being bored is something that we really try to avoid. Uh, But I think this is especially true when an individual is in their younger years in life. One day early on in my college experience, several friends of mine and I decided that we needed a remedy for our boredom. It was the weekend, there was nothing going on except for doing homework, which didn't seem to be a a consideration. Uh, We just wanted to do something exciting. And since our college was located about an hour away from the city and most of us were needing to save money for school, our attention was drawn to a more cost-effective diversion on campus. Behind the college, there were acres of forest and hiking trails, and one of my friends in the group knew about a massive tree out there that had a rope swing on it. Now, this, this tree was located on a, on a steep hill, um, and so, so what would happen is you could, you could walk the rope swing up the hill and just launch off and swing out. That was, he was like, it's going to be great. We should go and check it out. So, so we, when we finally got there, um, my friends decided that they wanted to make things a little more interesting, that instead of taking turns on the swing, they all wanted to see how many of us could get on it at one time. <laughs> now, I was a little cautious about this idea because I'd never been on the swing, and I wanted to avoid it breaking <laughs> and me breaking. Um, so, uh, so, I was, so I was a little bit cautious, but my friends were really good guys. Like these were guys that they, they weren't up to, you know, they, they weren't out to hurt anyone. Um, they, were, they were responsible uh, young men. And, uh, and one of them was like, hey, look, it's, you can trust it. You can trust it. It's, it's a secure rope swing. It's a really strong tree, strong branch. It, it's going to be okay. It's sturdy. So after listening to this, I decided to believe him. And as a result of believing him, I got on the swing. And soon there were several of us hanging on to this swing as it launched out over the, just launched out away from, from, the, from the hill. And we were soaring through the air. We were shouting and laughing and having a great time. And it was actually a great experience. And so as I think back on this, as I reflect on it, I can say that I'm really glad that I decided to believe my friend. Because if I hadn't believed him, if I hadn't gotten on the swing, I would have missed out on an amazing experience. When there's a high risk involved, believing is tough, right? When there's a lot on the line, when your safety, when your well-being is on the line, it's, it's tough. It's tough to believe. And truth be told, it would have been much harder for me to believe my friend and get on that swing, uh, believe that, that the swing was safe, if we hadn't been out there in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I could have actually seen that this swing was going out over a really steep cliff. And at the bottom of that cliff, were the school's retention ponds. (laughs) Might have been a little more difficult for me to have believed him had I seen all that. Anyway, um, you know, in church we talk a lot about believing so much. Did did you guys get that story? Are you you with me on that? Okay, all right, okay. Bad scenario. (laughs) Would not want to end up in there. All right, in church we talk a lot about believing. So much so that some might assume that we're all experts at it. 
We talk about it a lot, but the problem is, is that believing God at any moment in our life can be really tough. Because the idea of believing God requires a huge risk. Since he is the Lord God, believing him means trusting him with our lives. Not knowing how things are going to turn out. Not knowing what that might mean. God's like, I want everything. Would you like to believe that? I think there's... There's many of us who say, yes, yes, but there's also a part of us and all of us who are really, really, if we're going to really look within ourselves and say, there's a lot on the line here. Can I really believe God? When he makes promises to me, can I absolutely believe that? I'm coming back. I love you. I forgive you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to supply all of your needs. You need wisdom? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to watch over you. All of these promises that he gives to us, can we really believe God? And I think if we look at our worry meter inside of us, it really is a good indication as to how much we might struggle to believe God. Why would I worry if I really believe God? Believing God can be tough. And yet if we take this risk, he promises us an abundant life. It's really worth it to believe God. Well, if you're just joining us, we're, we've been talking lately about the Sabbath. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling The Rest We Need. We're looking at the rest that God provides. And, and yeah, there's a physical aspect, but what we're really looking at is the soul rest that God provides for us. The rest from worry, the rest from fear, the rest from sin and the, and the messed up decisions that we are so prone to making. God gives us rest from those things. To help you process the messages and to apply them to your life, we provided a resource. I know that this might be a reminder for some, but for those who have not heard it yet, we provided a resource on our website. You can go to medfordsda.org and you can just click on this small group study guides. You can download it. It's really easy to use. Um, there's, there's three parts to the study guide. The first part it's just questions that anyone can answer. You just get us into the, the, the topic. Then there's some study questions that get you into the Bible. And then there's an application uh, section at the end. The idea is that you do it with someone else. You do it in a small group or find a friend or a family member. You can also do it um, by yourself. But, but do your best to find someone else. And I, I guarantee that this experience, I've experienced it myself, this experience of having a spiritual conversation with someone else, ending with praying for each other, is powerful. There's some real power there, so I encourage you to check that out. All right, so today, uh, the title of the message is uh, Believer's Rest. This is what believers do. This is their activity. And, and so to, 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 what we're going to be looking at today is a Bible story from the Old Testament. It's actually, it's actually a warning. We're going to be looking at a passage in the New Testament. It references an Old Testament Bible story of a group of people that chose not to believe God's promises. And this story points out the, the terrible results that came from that choice, really heartbreaking consequences of the choice that they made. And, we, and I want to look at it because this story not only serves as a warning to help us not make that same mistake of not believing what God promises us, but it also shows us how any one of us, no matter how small you might think your faith is, how any one of us can believe God's promises fully. We can fully believe God's promise. So to speak, we can get on that swing. We can get on this experience of resting in what God has for us. Any one of us can. Shows us that. Any one of us can experience God's greatest blessings that he has in store for us. All right, before we get into the Bible passage, I'd like to just invite you to pause with me for a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, you know our tendency to not believe. And yet, we also accept that everything is riding on that. So I pray, God, that we would get the inspiration that we need, that your Spirit would speak to our hearts, and that we would just openly receive the words of life and take hold of what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you could turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Really appreciate it if you could uh, join me here in following along with this, this passage. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible is recalling a sad story. It's a sad story of Israel on the borders of the promised land. Now, for hundreds of years prior to the people of Israel coming to the border of the promised land, hundreds of years prior to this, Jewish people had been talking about this moment. They'd waited for this moment. God had promised this land to Abraham years and years earlier. He again repeated that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And they had passed on this promise from generation to generation that this land would be theirs. This land was a gift from God. Now that they are finally at the border, the moment that generations have been waiting for has come. They're at the border of the promised land, the southern border of the promised land at this moment. Their greatest hopes are about to come true. But just then, as they're at that southern border of the promised land, 12 men, one from each tribe of Israel, return from, um, from surveying the promised land. They have a huge bunch of grapes that they have on a, on a pole that they're carrying between two people. They have samples of all the di- of different kinds of fruit from the promised land. And they are just, just glowing with what they've seen. They said, it's everything that we have hoped for. Everything is there. It's amazing. It truly is a land flowing with milk and honey, just as God had promised. And I can just imagine that after all of their wandering in the wilderness, that they were longing for a place where they could just uh, stop wandering, stop walking different places. They could just find their, their home and rest. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a place of rest, a place that they could call their own. And it was perfect for them. It was perfect for agriculture, perfect for livestock. That's what a land flowing with milk and honey means. Perfect for agriculture and livestock. And that really meant a lot to them because that was their life. Um, But there was a problem. Some of these men who who surveyed the land, they said that the people there are too strong for us and so we can't go in. It's this incredible place, but we can't have it. Yeah, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, but, but we're going to die if we try to go in and, and take it. And after listening to this message, the people decided that all of a the sudden, they could not believe God's promise that he was giving them this land. And as a result of that choice, the people of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. It's a heartbreaking story. They had it all. It was right there. But because they did not believe, they completely missed out on the abundance that God had. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness, and the reason for that was that God was waiting for that unbelieving generation to die. Everyone except for Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that said, no, no, we can go in and take it. Yeah, there are giants in the land. Yeah, they have fortified cities. God is with us. He's promised it. Let's take hold of the promise. The people chose not to believe that. And so they spent the rest of their lives in the wilderness 
until the next generation would rise up. Well, just as Israel missed out when God had promised, they missed out on what he had promised. The same thing can happen to us. We're in a very similar situation on the borders of the heavenly promised land. Same thing can happen to us. Hebrews 4 is bringing that out and, and, and trying to, to help us to avoid that same, that same heartbreaking experience, that same sad experience that happened to Israel. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise, notice the language, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. According to the Bible, we're going we're to try to break this down and understand it. According to the Bible, God promises an experience of rest similar to that of entering into the promised land for us today. That's what he's talking about here. Now, to understand what Hebrews 4.1 is talking about when it says entering his rest, like what is he referring to there in verse 1 when he says entering his rest? We need to take a look at the context of the previous verses. Look at what it says in chapter 3, starting with verse 16. Here, the, the writer of Hebrews gives several different questions, a series of questions, to help us understand and explain the meaning of the word rest. Look for the meaning of the word rest here. What is he talking about, verse 16? Who were they who heard and rebelled? Who were they? Were they not those Moses led out of Egypt? Oh, okay, this is who we're talking about. We're talking about Israel after they just came out of Egypt. Verse 17, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter God's rest, in other words, the promised land, because of their unbelief. Here, the Bible writer is making a, a direct correlation between entering God's rest and entering the promised land. Now, Seventh-day Adventists we might say, well, God's rest is the Sabbath, and, and that is true. But listen to, look at the point that he's making here. He's comparing God's rest with the promised land. This is what they were thinking about. At the time of the Exodus, entering God's rest meant entering the promised land. And here's why. When the people of Israel finally, 40 years later, when they finally entered the promised land, there was no work for them to do. No work. There was nothing, nothing to be done. Joshua, in Joshua 24, verse 13, I'm going to put this up there for you. This is what he says. This is, this is Moses' successor commenting on the experience after the people of Israel already entered into the promised land. He, he's, well, he's, talking, he's giving the words of God. This is God speaking here. He says, I gave you a land on which you did not toil. Another way of saying that is you did not work. And cities you did not build. You didn't have to work for the cities. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. No work. Everything was provided for you in the promised land. This is why it's called the land of rest. Everything was there. The cities were already built. 
The vineyards, the, the orchards, everything was already there, and it was producing food. All they had to do was enjoy the abundance. That's what it means to rest. It was this active work of going in and collecting the fruit, going in and harvesting the grain, going in and occupying the cities. This is what it meant to rest, to go in and take possession of the land. In the promised land, if you look at this, God has perfectly anticipated all the needs of his people. And he's provided for it in advance. It's all perfectly anticipated. And, and really, it's anticipated in abundance. He's provided every, he provided everything for his people there. But when they first, entered the, first came to the borders, the southern border of the promised land, when they first came to that place, they refused to go in. It was all provided. It was all there. But they said, it's too risky It's too risky to trust God. Another way to look at this is it's like planning a really special party for someone. And you go all out. You don't you don't, you don't skimp on any preparation. You have the best decorations. You, you, you make it look just amazing. You cater the nicest food. You've got the best desserts. You send out invitations. You make plans. You do all of this stuff. Everything is ready. It's going to be an amazing party. It's going to be an amazing time together. The music is all there. It's going to be great. But the person for whom the party is for decides just not to show up. How would you feel? This is the feeling of God. He's provided everything. I'm going to presume is how God felt. Provided everything. Actually, I don't have to presume. He was upset. He was upset with the people. It's all there. Why, do, why wouldn't you go in? This is essentially God's experience, planning this, this amazing party. And the people of Israel just said, we're not going to go in. Hebrews 4 verse 1 calls us to learn from this. Because the promise of rest still stands. There is a similar experience of entering into a place that is completely provided in abundance. An experience that is everything that we could ever hope for. Everything that we could ever want. It is already prepared. It is there for us. If we will just believe. The promise of rest still stands. So, What rest is God promising us today? What is this rest? What is this experience so similar to the promised land? In studying these verses, I have noticed that there is a striking parallel between God's description of the promised land and how God speaks of the promised land and how God speaks of Jesus. Just like the promised land, Jesus is promised to us. We see that promise over and over again. We see God saying it to Adam and Eve. We see him repeating it to his people over and over again. There's a Messiah. He's going to come. He's going to deliver you. The promise is there. God promised Jesus to, to his people, to us. And when Jesus came, God provided everything that we need for life, everything we need for a connection with God, everything we need to be saved from our worst enemy, our ultimate enemy, which is death. Jesus provides everything that we need. And we do not receive Jesus by trying to earn it, by trying to work for him, by trying to to somehow gain his favor. We already have his favor. We receive Jesus through the act, the radical act of belief. There There are these correlations there. And I would submit to you that the promise that still stands is the promise of Jesus. He is the abundance. 
He is the one where everything is experienced that we need for salvation. And we experience that through belief. Hebrews 4 goes on to compare the promised rest to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, is, is what aligns us with Jesus. God promises us rest. You see it again there. He provides this rest on the Sabbath. He takes care of us. We don't have to work because we have a God who takes care of us. And we enter that rest by believing. Now, some might struggle to believe God's promise. If you're like me, it's like, man, how do I, how do I believe God's promises? Some might struggle to believe God's promises. But the fact is God gives us his promises because he sees that we are capable of doing something very difficult. There's a reason God doesn't drag people to his party. There's a reason God doesn't just pick up his people and put them in the promised land. There's a reason he doesn't just make us saved and force us to follow him. It's because he knows that we are capable of doing the difficult act of believing. He gives us this precious promise. He provides everything for us in Jesus, everything that you need to, to know God and to, be, to, to experience his righteousness and, and to be complete and whole. He gives that all to us in Christ and says, he is yours if you will say, I believe. And I'm going to take possession of the life of Christ. I'm going to think the thoughts of Christ. I'm going to follow Jesus because his life has been given to us. Every year, God gave his people a special reminder that they needed to believe, that they needed to believe God's promises, that their life was contingent upon this, their freedom and their joy and their satisfaction, their, their purpose in life was, was contingent upon believing God's promises. When, when the Passover was first celebrated in Egypt, the Bible tells us that the people were told to eat the Passover meal, the, the lamb and the bitter herbs and the bread. They were supposed to eat that standing up because very soon, at any moment, God was going to deliver them, and they needed to be ready to, to walk out of the land of slavery. And so he says, eat it with your loins girded. <laughs> they, were, they were supposed to be ready for traveling. That means they were supposed to be standing up and ready to go. Now, after they entered the promised land, years later, the, it's very interesting, the posture of the believers celebrating the Passover changed. John chapter 13 gives us a picture of Jesus and his disciples. And they're not standing up as they celebrate the Passover. What are they doing? They're reclining at the table. There would have been a, a low-lying table in this upper room where Jesus celebrated the last Passover, the last supper before his crucifixion. And on that low-lying table in the middle of the room, there would have been the, the meal prepared. And, and the disciples and Jesus would have been laying on pillows They'd been reclining on one side of, of their body, laying on the ground with their feet away from the table, all around the table. They would have been in a reclining position. And although the disciples, as we picture them around this table reclining, it appears that they are resting on the outside. What was really going on on the inside was that they were striving to be number one. They were striving to be the greatest. 
The New Testament tells us that the disciples from time to time would argue who was the greatest among them. Who is number one? Who's the greatest disciple? And we see evidence in John chapter 13 that this argument had not been settled, that they were still jockeying for position in God's kingdom, so they thought. The argument was still going on. That was the custom to have a slave come and wash the disciples' feet or wash the feet of any participant in in a meal like this. This was a very humbling, dirty, unpleasant activity. But it needed to be done. The hygienic customs of the day required that a slave would go around the, the outside of the table where everyone's feet was, were, were pointing out, and, and they would go around and they would, they would wash the disciples' feet. But on this occasion, no preparation had been made for a slave to do this. Now, everyone knew, everyone in this room on John chapter 13, everyone knew that this should be done. But no one among the disciples wanted to stoop and humble themselves to this lowly task. To provide a way for this, the disciples and for us today to rest from our pride that keeps us from believing. Pride is the enemy of belief. To rest from our pride. Jesus, in John chapter 13, if you want to go there, go ahead uh, with me, please. John chapter 13, let's see if I have it up there. I don't. But John chapter 13, verse 4, tells us that Jesus got up from the table, got up from his reclining position when he saw that there was service that needed to be done and no one was stepping up to do it. He gets up, takes off his outer garment just as a slave would have done, stripped down just to, his, just to a garment around his waist, wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. And in doing this, Jesus provided what they could not provide for themselves. He provided a soul-cleansing And those who accepted Jesus' service were cleansed from their dirty way of life, from the pride that kept them from believing. Jesus' life provides us the way to abundant life. His example is given to us in John chapter 13. In verses 13 and 14, he he tells us how we can be free also from the pride that keeps us from believing, from experiencing this amazing thing of entering into a place of abundance, of having Jesus give us everything that we need, covering us with his righteousness. He tells us how to take possession of that life. In verse 13 of John chapter 13, he says that you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is who I am. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This is the command of Christ. And he's calling us to a lifestyle. But I believe that he's literally calling us to go through this practice of washing each other's feet, like he's talking about here, because it positions us, it sets us up to believe to believe in Jesus in a way that we give him our life and follow his life of service. We take possession of what he shows us and how to live. Dependence upon the Father and serving others. In a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to follow Jesus' command here in John chapter 13, verse 14, and, and actually literally serve one another by washing each other's feet. We do this to prepare our hearts to receive the emblems which are sitting up here of Christ's body and his blood, the bread and the grape juice. 
And I just want to say that, that if you are not a church member here, you are still welcome to participate in this. If you would like to enter into the Spirit of Christ, inviting us to follow His example of washing one another's feet, you are welcome to join. And this is how we do it here. Um, we'll, we'll dismiss. Uh, families can serve one another. Husbands, wives, um, parents, children, siblings can serve one another. In the family's room, you go through the door, or rather in the, the fireside room, um, Families can serve one another there. Women, serving women, you go out the door to your right, and you'll go to the room on the left-hand side. That's the junior room. Men are on the right-hand side. Afterwards, we invite you to return to the sanctuary where we will receive the emblems of Christ's body and his blood. And as you do, just a few more instructions here. There's some sashes on the row. We, we would ask that you would leave those rows empty so that we can go out and, and, and serve you. The deacons and elders can serve you there. So if you leave those empty... Uh, appreciate that. Those who are not able to participate, we recognize that some people just aren't able, or, or those, those who choose not to, we just invite you to remain in the sanctuary. And uh, if you're in the balcony, you are welcome to stay up there, but it would make it a lot easier if you could come and join us down uh, on, the, on the main floor here. So we'd appreciate that. During the time of the foot washing, children, you have a special story from some amazing storytellers from Kesslin and Elise. We are so glad that they're going to they're be given a story during this time. And before we dismiss, I'd like to just have a word of prayer uh, for this service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that you see the struggle that we have. We are naturally proud. We naturally want to trust ourselves. We naturally don't want to believe you. Thank you for providing a remedy for our pride through service. I pray that you would bless each one that participates in this foot washing service and bless each one that is not able to participate for whatever reason. I pray, God, that we would be able to enter into the spirit of humble service, submission, allowing you to wash the pride from our hearts and preparing us to receive your life. Bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.